intro music. Welcome to the <laughs> inaugural episode of Definitely Not Legal Advice, presented by Blue Rock Law. My name is Stuart Meyer, and I'm joined by my fellow partner, Laura McPhee, here in Calgary, Alberta. And remember, while we're lawyers by day, this podcast is definitely not legal advice. <laughs> so Laura, welcome. Today, we're going to talk about contracts. What are they? Contracts are probably one of my favorite, well, as a lawyer, probably one of my favorite things that exist in the world. They, they do, in fact, make the world go round. And surprisingly, contra- contracts are a lot more things than I think we think they are. Um, I think most of us probably think of contracts as something that is on paper. There's a bunch of black and white writing. Uh, it's usually several pages long. Sometimes we read it and we cannot make sense or for down or what is being said in the contract and that it requires someone to sign on a dotted line at the bottom. And in fact, that's actually not uh, not most of the contracts that we enter into. If you've ever gone out and bought a snack or said okay to a software update on your computer without reading the terms and conditions, surprise, you have in fact entered into a contract. And I think that's the key aspect is, I mean, people enter into these kind of into a contract every single day. You and I joked about earlier that on any given day, whether you're a lawyer or not, you're probably entering between three and five contracts every single day without even thinking about it. It's buying, buying your groceries, as you mentioned conducting your software update on your phone that you're not reading the terms and conditions to. Um, so fundamentally, we'll, we'll kind of go through the basics of, of what a contract is and, and touch on all the respective elements. So, Stu, do you want to start us off with uh, the, first, uh, the first integral piece? For sure. So, well, fundamentally, kind of a, as a basic starting point, is the contract is a promise between two or more people. And these are promises that are recognized legally. Uh, by the courts. And if this promise is broken, it attracts liability. In in essence, what does that actually mean? Because people make promises all the time. You know, Laura, I could say, I promise that you're my best friend, but I miss our coffee hangout. Are you able to go to the courts and step in and force me to do that? Most people would say, well, no. On the other hand, you know, I can't go and buy a car because of all the great things that you tell me the car has. And I pay you and you go, hey, well, it, it doesn't actually have any of those things. I didn't mean that. <laughs> Enjoy your car. I think I'd be equally upset to learn that you weren't my best friend <laughs> as I would be that the car I bought doesn't have the same things. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah. So, the, the, you know, the fundamental aspect is it's a promise in, in the eyes of the law. We're looking at a promise that liability is attracted to the deal. So let's talk about what you actually need to cook up a legally binding contract. We can say that a contract is made up of distinct pieces or elements. And once you have all those elements, you have a contract. And then the way I kind of like to think about it, it's like ingredients in a soup. If you have all the ingredients, you have soup. First and foremost, let's talk, let's talk about the offer and acceptance. Picture this. You're at your local coffee shop, you slide five bucks across the counter and say, I like coffee, you like money, one coffee please. That's your offer. When the barista nods and takes your money, that's the acceptance. However, if Laura the barista comes back and says, sure, I'll give you the coffee, but only if you twerk, 
that would be your counter offer. And I guess if uh, if you're on the receiving end of a counter offer, um, in this example in particular, you then have the option to either proceed uh, with twerking and uh, providing the payment so requested by the barista, or perhaps you can venture down the street and uh, see if you can find a coffee place that uh, doesn't require you to be rhythmically gifted in uh, order to get your, uh, your daily dose of caffeine. It's kind of the decision that you're left with in that case. The initial offer, your offer saying, I'm going to give you money in exchange for coffee, goes away entirely. And the only offer that's on the table then is the counter offer. Right. And, and the, the essential elements here that we're trying to think about is the offer it has to be clear enough that the person can understand what the person's agreeing to. And the acceptance has to be unequivocal and communicated. So the parties it, need to have a meeting of the minds so that everyone knows exactly what's being given and what's being exchanged. Exactly. No no funny business until the deal is actually signed. So and this and this touches on, on a lot of the heart of intention to actually enter into this into an agreement. So if can you kind of touch on that aspect a little bit. Right. Part and parcel of any uh, offer and acceptance is that the parties must actually intend to create a legal relationship or they must intend to be bound by the terms of their agreement. Uh, a really good example of this is actually a case that arose recently in the Saskatchewan Court of King's Bench where a grain purchaser and a farmer had been exchanging correspondence and phone calls over the course of the growing season. And at some point during those discussions, the grain purchaser had asked uh, or had put an offer on the table suggesting that they were going to buy a certain proportion of flax grain at a set price. Later through their correspondence and discussions, the grain purchaser had actually drawn up a contract and texted a picture of this contract to the farmer to review and had asked the farmer to confirm the, the terms of their agreement. The farmer had responded with a thumbs up emoji. When the time for delivery of the grain actually rolled around later in the fall, no grain was delivered to the grain purchaser and the grain purchaser sued in order to enforce the contract. Um, interestingly, the Saskatchewan Court of King's Bench actually upheld uh, and sided or ruled in favor of the grain purchaser saying that a thumbs up emoji can actually constitute entering into a contract and can constitute the intention to be legally bound by an agreement. To the extent that you're the type of person that likes to engage in your business discussions via text message, you have to be very, very mindful what your, uh, what your thumbs up emoji means when you're texting your business colleagues. Thinking about use of GIFs or GIFs, <laughs> depending on uh, <laughs> on your terminology there. You have to be careful in that respect. And, you know, I think about that case, you know, what would have happened if they sent over just the wink face emoji? <laughs> How might that have changed things? You know, again, we go back to, well, would that have been considered a counter offer? But I suppose I suppose we'll have to uh, wait for the next, uh, next case to come along, digital contract world. So in the meantime, be careful who you're sending your text messages and your emojis to. Right. <laughs> <laughs> kind of moving on the next and we the kind of third essential pillar and and we'll go a little bit further in, in for some of the other fundamental aspects of a contract but you can have your offer you can have your acceptance but before you actually have a deal there must be some exchange of value this is what we call consideration we're not talking about oh you're so considerate when you buy flowers for your wife when you forget her birthday we're talking about in the contract space uh, an exchange of value that's bound to the actual deal. So this could be money, it could be services, goods, a promise, or a promise to do 
or not do something. And in the eyes of the law, this can be about almost anything. The law isn't, doesn't have a lot of consideration whether, no pun intended, whether it's a good deal or a bad deal. Uh, the classic example being the peppercorn theory. <laughs> Uh, so uh, this is a riveting case from uh, 1861 by the Common Court of Pleas in Upper Canada uh, that had to assess uh, a lease wherein the first year's rent of that lease was intended to be the value of a mere peppercorn. Uh, ultimately, the court's place is not to decide whether or not your deal was fair or, or whether the consideration was uh, requisite value. They're just there to ensure that if you do actually have a binding contract, which can be demonstrated through exchange of nominal value, such as a mere peppercorn, or perhaps in today's uh, parlance, a, a, a dollar, the exchange of a dollar, uh, the court is there to ensure that that actually does happen and not to... Uh, interfere with whether or not you you made a, a good deal or a bad deal with respect to the valuation you received or the level of consideration you received. Yeah, so the fundamental aspects here, whether it's a good deal or a bad deal, if you have the offer acceptance and whether it's a dollar, a peppercorn, or anything else for some form of value, you have a deal. So Perhaps um, a twerk show from, for, from the barista, that's part of the consideration. <laughs> d depending on considering how much value you would attribute to uh, dance. So um, moving on, I think we touched on the basic building blocks, but there's a few other considerations people should keep in mind before, uh, before entering in or reviewing an agreement. I think next we could talk about capacity, if you could touch on that. Yeah, so uh, legal capacity. Um, effectively means that the parties to uh, a contract have to be capable of actually entering into the contract. First, they must exist. So if, you, uh, if you're entering into a contract between two businesses, both of those businesses, those entities must actually exist at the time that you're entering into the contract. So unfortunately, even if you uh, have plans to create a business down the road and you want to start uh, arranging for supplier agreements or things like that, until you actually have your business in place, you can't actually enter into those agreements because your business does not have the legal capacity to enter into those businesses or into those agreements. Anytime you're dealing with individual persons, you also have to think about mental capacity um, and also legal capacity. So for example, contracts uh, with minors typically are not enforceable because they don't have legal capacity in order to actually enter into those contracts. Likewise, if someone uh, is suffering from a, uh, a mental deficit of some sort that prevents them from being um, capable of entering into a contract, obviously any contract that you enter into, some into with someone who's at that stage would not be enforceable. So these are really important considerations depending on the type of contract you're entering into and the timing in which you're entering into it. And I think this ties perfectly into kind of the next basis of, of a contract is legality because of, as you've kind of mentioned, if, if someone's under any form of duress or undue pressure, don't have a binding contract. But this also ties to the, that the purpose and content of the agreement actually itself has to be legal. So a contract, for example, let's say you have you have villainous Vinny and he wants to enter the contract scene, the contract business. Ooh. Uh, and he approaches Hitman Hank with a business proposal and Vinny says, well, Hank, I'll give you 50 grand to take care of my competition. And Hitman Hank agrees. Little did he know that their contract is not enforceable. Why? Because, well, surprise, surprise, hiring a hitman is illegal and contracts for illegal activities are void. And in the similar sense, any kind of contract, whether it be for hiring an assassin or just a regular oil and gas deal, if it's against public policy or has carries any 
illegal actions or anything that's not in the purview of regulatory law, it will be seen as void. So again, in, in this respect, it's always a best case to consider whether you're entering a deal, whether or not it can actually be enforceable. That actually leads nicely into another point that I wanted to chat about was certainty and possibility of performance of a contract. Um, and actually, I want to go back to your uh, Villainous Vinny and Hitman Hank example, where Villainous Vinny was hiring Hitman Hank to, quote, take care of his competition. When you're entering into a contract, as we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, it's very important to have a meeting of the minds. So both parties need to be very clear on what the meaning of the terms of the contract are and what each party's rights and obligations are. So... I'm sure in this uh, in this context, both Vinny and uh, Hank are very aware of what, quote, take care of the competition means. But when you're entering into a contract, that's something you want to make sure that you're making very, very clear. And you can do that by defining terms and using a very plain, clear language or, cl- or language that's understood very well in the industrial context in which you're operating. Um, so that's, uh, that's sort of on the certainty piece. Um, from the possibility of performance piece, it's also integral and key for the obligations under the contract to be possible to be discharged. So for example, when the existence of a particular thing is essential to a contract and that thing is destroyed through no fault of of either of the parties, the parties may actually be released from their obligations under the contract. This is called when a contract has been frustrated. Sort of one of the primary examples of this is a case called Caldwell and Taylor from 1861, where Taylor wanted to rent a concert hall owned by Caldwell to put on a production of a variety of extravagant entertainments during the summer of 1861. The parties negotiated back and forth how long the the lease would be, what the cost would be, and they entered into a contract for the leasing of this concert hall. Unbeknownst to either of the parties, shortly before the concert was meant to take place, the concert hall actually had burned down and therefore it was impossible for the concert to take place at the, the concert hall that was no longer standing. Court ruled at that time that essentially the contract had been frustrated and that alleviated or removed or released, I guess, both parties from their obligations under the under the contract. Any money that was paid in order to rent the concert hall had to be returned, and there could be no sort of negative repercussions to Caldwell for being unable to, to fulfill their side of the bargain because their concert hall had actually burned down. That's also something to be aware of and keep in mind anytime you are entering into a contract because things happen. Life, uh, life comes up. <laughs> These unforeseen kind of things that, that might come across again to our classic uh, coffee and twerking example. What if what if there is not appropriate dance floor? It, these, are, these are the important things that we have to keep in mind. So uh, thanks for that example, Laura. So the, the last kind of thing that we can kind of touch on here is the formalities. Now, generally, you're entering a contract, it can be verbal, oral, or a combination. I mean, a classic example is a contract can be formalized by writing on a napkin or just a simple handshake. Or as we kind of touched on earlier, a simple click-through of, uh, of your latest software update, terms and conditions agreement. While specific formalities are, are not generally required, depending on 
if there's a certain statute in place or law requires a fundamental formality before entering an agreement, we have to recognize that to actually have an enforceable contract, there are certain specific formalities, such as being in writing, a contract being witnessed or notarized. These are some essential elements uh, that people should keep in mind. For example, a contract for a sale of land or a home requires to be in writing. However, there are some other classic examples. If you could kind of touch on the myth of the, the classic check written on the side of a cow is often used to give color to this concept. <laughs> the story goes that there was uh, an unfortunate individual by the name of uh, Mr. Haddock who owed a fair amount of tax to the tax man. Um, and this, uh, this uh, all took place in the 1920s and 1930s. At the time, Mr. Haddock's business was not doing very well. He didn't have the money to, to pay the tax bill. But what he did have, because he was a farmer, uh, he did have a cow. Instead of presenting the tax man with money, what he did is he took his cow and he wrote the necessary information for a check on the side of his cow. So he said, this is to the London and Literary Bank, to the collector of taxes. Here's the amount of my tax. He wrote, uh, I think it was 57, 57 pounds or something like that at the time that he owned in tax. And so he wrote the amount on the side of the cow and uh, his account information, showed up at the tax man's office with, uh, with the cow in tow and attempted to give his, uh, his negotiable instrument, uh, i.e. the cow, to the taxman to clear his his tax owing. Uh, as you can imagine, the taxman was not impressed by this and did not accept the cow is uh, in lieu of payment of his taxes. And Mr. Haddock ultimately defaulted on his tax amount. When the taxman uh, sued Mr. Haddock in order to try and recover this amount that was owed, it was found by the court that his presentation of the cow constituted a negotiable instrument. He presented it to the taxman. The taxman refused to accept it and was therefore were barred from later requiring him to pay in a different form or a different kind. Um, this is, uh, I think this this is not a real case. This was a, a case that was uh, fictitiously created by um, Mr. Herbert uh, in the 1920s and 1930s. Part of his shtick was to write spoofs on uh, the the way in which the law was was working and to come up with funny ways in which you could poke holes at uh, how the law worked. So very, very interesting, very exciting. Not a real case, but that's where the myth of the negotiable cow comes from. And I think the moral of the story of that is, again, you, you might think that you have a, a contract or a deal in place if it's whether or not it's written on a napkin, but it's very, very important to be cognizant of before you write on your pet, for example, <laughs> in, in terms of conducting a deal. Um, what sort of formalities actually need to be in place before before you hop into that? So thanks, thanks for that, Laura. We've kind of we've touched on basically the elements of of contracts here. Any other general kind of takeaways? Um, in your legal practice that you've seen that uh, our listeners should be aware of. I think, uh, I guess going back to the theme of our podcast, where we'll, uh, we'll repeat that this is definitely not legal advice. One of the takeaways from my practice, which largely is on the litigation side of things, um, oftentimes you're entering into contracts and you're not, you can't, you can't possibly always think of every way that it could possibly go wrong, but it helps to consult a lawyer who can sort of help walk you through that and make sure that you are uh, at least protecting yourself as much as you possibly can when entering into a contract. 
And then obviously, if, if anything does go awry when, when you've entered into a contract or something doesn't work out, I think it's really important to consult the lawyer to see how they can help mitigate some of the damage or some of the risk posed to you. And also ensure that and ensure that your rights that you're entitled to under the, under the contract are actually enforced and enforceable. That's, that's sort of the, my basic takeaway would be these are really good things to think about for sure. And you should be aware of them anytime you're entering into a contract. But um, seeking out independent legal advice is probably key for, for most of our listeners. Exactly. So with that being said, for all of your individual contract conundrums or specifically legal inquiries, feel free to give us a shout at Blue Rock Law, blueRocklaw.com at any time. And we hope you've gained some clarity on the essentials of contracts. And again, remember, this podcast is definitely not legal advice. <laughs> so thanks to everyone for listening and stay tuned for our upcoming episodes. Goodbye.